We're looking at one verse, or a couple of verses particularly, uh, this morning, found in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, (coughs) but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, we've just emerged Uh, from the Christmas season and increasingly we are aware that for many in our nation this is very much a season that we could say is at the level of fantasy. It is of course a secular uh, occasion for our nation. It's a, a time when people have rest from work and holiday and it's a time when religious matters are, are there but for many Uh, It's not wrong to say in these days that it is greatly engaged with fantasy. Uh, And often things are not made better but made worse by those who stand up in the name of Christ and say things about Christmas and what it is about. So it it is right for us and helpful for us just to look particularly at this first phrase, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now, the Apostle Peter was not speaking in a time when there were no fables or fantasies. In fact, the New Testament age was full of fables and fantasies. The rabbis, for example, many of them embellished Old Testament stories and added their own thoughts and their own ideas to the narrative. Within the secular culture, there were Greek dramas uh, and Greek religion and Roman religion, all about the descent of the so-called gods and, and, and what they got up to, which in many ways just mirrored the sinful behavior of people. This was an occasion to Peter when it was written, when there was the emergence of Uh, a whole set of heresies which go under the name of Gnosticism, which were basically a kind of New Age idea that that involved uh, spirits and the supernatural, but completely unbiblical. So there were many cunningly devised fables in the days of Peter. The, The background was a background of fantasy, Uh, in which the New Testament emerged in all its beauty and truthfulness. And surely in the providence of God, this was part of the preparation that God uh, caused to come for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. He allowed human sin and false religion to so rise up that the darkness was more intense and the brightness of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ shone more brightly. Now the phrase that's used here, cunningly devised fables, means literally stories or myths that are artfully framed by human cleverness. In other words, artfully spun, artfully devised. So we've got the whole idea of entertainments mixed in 
with these fables and myths, many of them religious, in the days of Peter. And I'm sure you will be aware that there are many such things happening uh, and being spun around in our day. And I'm not just talking about what we might call fake news that comes over the media. I'm talking about that which is said in that not just in the name of religion, but often in the name of Christianity. Let me just give you one example of that. Here is a cleverly spun idea. Here is a cleverly spun fable. If it were possible to do it, uh, but the attempt is made to have a Christianity from which every supernatural element is extracted so that ultimately Jesus is just, yeah, he is a baby there in a stable. But every, any aspect which could in any way underline the supernatural intervention of God is, is played down. So we have a creation that's not really a creation, it's just an evolution over millions of years. We have a collection of ideas and noble thoughts that are penned not in the times when the authors uh, are known to have penned them from Scripture itself, but uh, according to the clever ideas of, of scholars, uh, right out of context with what Scripture itself shows. We have a man who, well, to, to quote one bishop of uh, a generation ago, we have a man who, who, who died and then the resurrection was just a trick with, with a bag of bones. And the virgin birth, well, that's, that's a myth, and so on. And, and, and here is an attempt to create a message which makes people feel good, but it is, in fact, a cleverly spun fable. And we've been living through some weeks of that, have we not? We've been living through it. Uh, and it's been mixed in with all other kinds of uh, fables, uh, Santa Claus and all that. But really, I want to move now just from what we've been uh, exposed to and part of and maybe too much influenced by. I want to just remind ourselves that what I am really describing now, in fact, applies to every religion in the world that isn't the true biblical religion. Every claim to know God, every claim to know the truth, which is not from Scripture, which is not concerned with the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the revelation of Jesus Christ, in fact, comes out of man's heads, ultimately cunningly devised fables. Whatever such religions may have of common grace and decency, and some of them do have them in their ethic in places, but their claim to exclusive knowledge of the truth and of God, in fact, makes them on exactly the same level as this phrase that we're talking about, cunningly devised fables. And brothers and sisters, we've got billions in our world today who are giving time and money, and effort, and sometimes huge piety to cunningly devised fables. 
inventions out of men's heads, out of men's sinful brains. This is the tragedy of a fallen world. And this is the tragedy, indeed, from which God, by his grace, if you are a Christian, God, by his grace, has extracted you and me. So, not fantasy. The gospel is not fantasy. It is indisputable fact. He said, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, he says, what we have presented to you in the gospels, in our letters, what we speak of in terms of the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, these things are facts, and we have made known to you facts. We've made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's the same word that's used here, uh, this word coming, as is used of the second coming of Christ, when he will come. For example, in 2 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 4, uh, it talks about those that say, where is the promise of his coming? And then in verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. He's speaking of facts, of events that are yet to happen, or an event that's yet to happen. But he said, we've told you about an event which has happened. We've made clear to you an event which has happened. Of course, he's not just speaking of himself here. He uses the word we. He's speaking of the apostles and evangelists who have given us the New Testament scriptures. And you notice when you look at what they have to say that all of them establish what they say in the realm of fact. I mean, the, the, of, the most obvious of those is Luke himself, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Just consider again how Luke begins his Gospel. He says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me, and so on. He's saying, I've, I've culled these things from eyewitnesses. And I want you to know the certainty of these things. Or take what the Apostle Paul says as he speaks of his own engagement with the facts in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse, verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. And then he goes to events. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to list eyewitnesses. 500 of them at one time included. Or think of the writings of the Apostle John. Think of the way in which he begins his first letter that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you he's not here in the realm of fantasy he's here in the realm of fact he's here in the realm of history 
Brothers and sisters, we are built in the gospel, we are built upon fact and history. And although, in a sense, what I'm saying, I know to many of you will be a truism, we need to remind ourselves of it again and again because we are in a world that's taken up with fantasy, cunningly devised fables. And it's a fool who says in his heart, there is no God. It's a fool to deny what is so obvious, but the fool does it. He doesn't necessarily do it with his mouth, but he does it in his heart. He's a fool in his spirit who lives as if there is no God because he just relegates that to the realm of fantasy, but he himself is living in the realm of fantasy. And the Apostle Peter, soon to die, as he makes clear in this second letter, soon to leave this earthly tabernacle, his body, soon to die, to be martyred as Jesus showed him. What does he establish his readers, the Christians, in? Where does he take them? He takes them to the factuality of the faith, to the historicity of it. And we cannot get away from that. We don't want to get away from that. We don't want to get away from a gospel which is historical and true, and yet at the same time it is shot through with the supernatural. It's shot through with this intersection of the invisible world, almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet this world which we can see and we can taste and handle, God intersects it, and he keeps breaking in with the supernatural, and it's factual. And so we have that statement concerning the mystery of godliness, the mystery of our religion. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Every one of those statements concerning Christ, concerning the gospel, every one of those statements, as it were, earthed in this world, the flesh, the justification is the resurrection, seen, preached, In the world, and yet each one of these statements, the supernatural intersecting it, God manifest, justified or resurrected, seen by angels, preached to the Gentiles and believed on, received up into glory. And he says, we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We made known to his first coming. And we said he was, we didn't just use the word his birth, but his coming. Because, of course, you and I are born into this world, but Christ came because he was sent. There's never been a time when he has not been. He has always been there, the second person of the blessed Trinity. And so he came, sent by the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, the babe at Bethlehem, sent by God. And that, yes, that was part of the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was power in that weakness, crucified in weakness, born in weakness, and yet raised in power. And then he said, we made known to you his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, that divine glory 
that mighty power of Christ that shone through on the, might, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just think of that mountain for a moment. I've looked up uh, and I, I, I was more or less aware of this, but I looked it up again. Which is the Mount of Transfiguration? Which was the mountain that Matthew 18 speaks of? Nobody knows. Nobody's, some say it's Mount Tabor. Some say it's Mount Hermon. And two or three other mountains are mentioned. But consider the heights of those mountains. The, the smallest of them, I think, Mount Tabor is about 2,300 feet. The highest of them is about 12,000 feet. So let's just say that probably the mountain was something like the highest mountain in the British Isles, perhaps between two and 3,000 feet. Just consider the disciples going up that mountain. Jesus and and his little inner circle of disciples going up the mountain. And what would Jesus be doing? He'd be climbing it like the others. And he'd be panting and pausing for breath from time to time like the others because he was indeed a man. He didn't zip up in some uh, strange Superman way. He would climb. He would toil. But when they got to the top, Then, by the grace and the power of God, his deity shone through. Then they beheld the change in his clothes, the change in his countenance, everything white and shiny and glorious, and Moses and Elijah coming and speaking with him. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his divine glory. He didn't stop being a man. He was fully man, but they saw now he was also fully God's. And it was factual, because there's an eyewitness here who's about to to lay down his life, and if tradition is true, to be crucified upside down at his request in order not to be like Jesus, in order to be different from his master. He's going to be martyred, uh, as Jesus predicted in John 21. And he's going to die not for myths, but for facts. So why do so many opt for the fantasy level? Why is it maybe even someone here is opting for the fantasy level and you have squirmed a bit as I have talked about a gospel in which the supernatural has to be there, in which God's coming in Christ and God's manifestation through Christ, it has to be there. Why do you, and you've squirmed a bit that. Why do people opt for the fantasy level? Well, the answer is because it's incredibly costly to say this is all really factual and historic. It's incredibly costly because, as we know, Jesus came in order to be our saviour. He came to save us from our sins. That's what the name Jesus means. He came as the Christ, as the anointed of God, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. He came to die for our guilt, for our wickedness. It's costly to face up to that, isn't it? It's costly to face up to my sinnerhood when I realize that's not something that God can sweep under the carpet. It's something that demanded, in God's love, it demanded the giving of his son, the death of his son, nothing less, the crucifixion. 
But you see, if the first advent was a fact, as Peter goes on to show in this second letter, the second advent is also going to be a fact. The second coming of Christ. That's what this letter is moving on to. As he helps believers to be established in this world with all the problems that are within the church. Chapter 2 talks about those problems within the church. With all the problems for believers that are in society. Chapter 3 goes on to talk about that. And he wants us to be established in this fact that Jesus is coming again. This is what he goes on to say. He says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now, what does that phrase mean? There's different interpretations of it. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? The day star, the morning star. The approach of the dawn, the approach of the light blazing in. It could refer, of course, to a general awakening, a revival of true religion. But I think most, most commentators say it is to do with the coming again of Jesus Christ. When he who is the bright and morning star comes with his angels in power and glory And how much this letter has to talk about that. The day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. The heavens passing away with great noise. The elements melting with fervent heat. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We just cannot afford brothers and sisters to live at fantasy level. We just cannot afford to be like the poor benighted people around us. We have to be earthed in truth. And we have, we have to live the truth. And we have to look for and haste unto the coming of Christ. We have to be ready for him. We have to live holy and godly. And we have to somehow open their eyes to what the truth is. And we notice in closing that as he affirms that we are in the realm of fact and not fantasy, he's, he's saying that we were eyewitnesses. We have this testimony of eyewitnesses inscribed for us in the scriptures. We have the Old Testament scriptures, of course, uh, that more sure word of prophecy which he speaks about in verse 19. And we have the eyewitness account. We have the accounts of the apostles. It's reliable. Now you could say, I suppose, that one very low-level lesson from our passage this morning is this. Don't believe everything you hear and read. Don't believe everything that's said by religious people just because they're doing it in some nice building, some marvelous piece of architecture or because they wear special clothing or even because they claim the name evangelical don't but just believe everything you hear and read does it accord with the eyewitness testimony of the apostles does it accord with what's written 
in the sure word of prophecy of the Old Testament. Let us distinguish between fact and fiction. And if you're not yet trusting in Christ as your saviour, may I say to you, dear friend, that you should consider the testimony of Christians down the centuries. That testimony which has often led many of them to shed their blood for the gospel's sake, to shed their blood for what is written in this book. It is believed that only one of the twelve apostles survived martyrdom, the apostle John. All the others were martyred. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ. They'd seen, they'd heard, they'd touched the Savior. Believe the truth. And if you are a believer, well, delight in this fact that we have this sure and certain hope. It is a blessed thing, is it not, to emerge from the rather saccharine and rather uh, depressing culture, even at uh, such a time as Christmas, which has many blessings in it of, of God's kindness to But we emerge from that to think, well, we're still living in the light. We're in the light. And we're looking forward to our Savior coming again. We're looking forward to the day star arising. We're looking forward to seeing his majesty also. We're looking forward to seeing the one of whom the apostle speaks when he says he received from God the Father honor and glory and there was this voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We're going to be there soon. We're going to be witnesses of these things. In our bodies, out of our bodies, we shall see him. May God bless these few thoughts to us this morning.